Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's Thursday at 4.20 p.m. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroya's weekly session for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name's Keisha, and I am co-modeling with my good friend Mandy. What's up, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. Super excited to be here. We're here for episode 43. The crew's all here together again. Um, did you guys know that we're also going live over on YouTube right now? I'll be watching for your questions, so don't be afraid to send them on over and I'll get them to the team. Um, also, be sure you're following us on Instagram and TikTok if you aren't already. Uh, but I heard word around the virtual office that we got a lot of questions for Seth and Jason this week. So I'm going to yeah. throw it back to you, Keisha. Yeah, thank you, Mandy. Yes, we have a lot of questions today, but you know, our live attendees, you are the focal point. If you have any questions for us, be sure to drop them in the chat. Let's get your question answered by one of the experts. Seth and Jason, how's it going, guys? Great. Good, good. Good, good to see you. We're in our bright white room here. So I just oh, no. didn't want to squint at the camera all day. Meaning business in that big bright white room. All right, are you ready for our first question from Instagram? Let's get it going. All right. This one comes from Mark MS90. First of all, he starts out with thanks to Seth and Jason for all the knowledge over the last 41 episodes. Not all heroes wear capes. Facts. All right. First question. They submitted two questions this week. They wanted to get your thoughts on the strict TYAM microbial limits below 100 CFUs per gram for EU medical cannabis. Now that's in the EU. You guys have any thoughts on that? Familiar with that? I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. So what he's talking about is like bacterial stuff. So colony forming units is what CFU stands for. Like in Washington state, you have to be below, I think it's 80,000 for pretty much anything. And uh, yeah, it sounds like it's a lot more strict in the, strict in the EU than here. Um, as far as that goes, I mean, basically you're just doing a test to see what's on it. You go out, people are going to plate out. Uh, not your actual weed, but a surface sample of it. We're going to see what grows. What do we get? Do we get botrytis? Do we get aspergillus? Are we getting, you know, several different kinds of bacteria? Are you spraying compost teas? Is it going to fail for E. coli? You know, what are we looking at? Um, as far as those tests go, I mean, obviously as a medical or recreational producer, if you're going to be selling your product in the U S you're definitely required to undergo microbial testing. Um, as far as reasons to fail go, uh, pretty numerous, you know, we can grow our own, own buds inside that have lots of rot. We can promote powdery mildew. Uh, like I said, compost teas are a great way to fail a microbial test, depending on your timing and application, just because you're can't really pasteurized compost. Otherwise we lose all the benefits we get out of it. Um, there's not a whole lot to say on it other than try to keep your facility clean and, uh, you know, there's probably a few key places you don't ever want to build an indoor grow facility or specifically a greenhouse, you know, right next to a feedlot or any place where you're going to have a lot of airborne contaminants coming in. That means you're going to have to spend more money on filtration if you want to grow there. Um, other than that, yeah, just try to stay clean. Yeah, thank you guys for that. Yeah, certainly industry standards are varying all over state, state by state, country by country, but really appreciative of that question. Um, one of our attendees, Bilbo. You posted a couple comments on this. You want to unmute yourself and speak to it? Okay. Yeah, I've dealt with this in the past. EU GMP is a 
is a big thing. And I think the biggest place that we saw failures was in the design build phase. So, well, design phase and, and licensing. So particular companies would build a facility with the intent of going EU GMP or shipping to that region, uh, design a facility based on local ordinance. And then, you know, some executives would get a wild idea to go actually complete on EU GMP. And then you get the EU GMP auditors coming in and they point out very obvious things in a tightly constrained uh, regulatory environment. The, The one that stuck out the most was not necessarily SOPs changing within the facility, but how it had been constructed, uh, particularly around how the air movement was designed in the in the ancillary space and then within the growth space itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely affects uh, how you want to design your system. You know, we've seen over the years. I'm glad you brought up the design build phase because I usually consider that also Gen 1 of your build out. Most people are going to, with success, they're going to have their Gen 1 build out. Then Gen 2 is like, hey, let's fix all those shortcomings, right? And that's a big one. I've seen a lot of people switch away from having shared HVAC systems and uh, also just investing in a lot more fan power to move air around the facility, not around the facility, but around the room while trying to separate rooms within the facility. So, uh, yeah, it, it all comes down to, uh, you know, bringing clean air in if you're going to bring it in. And if you got air inside, making sure it stays clean. Excellent. Thank you. Love this conversation, Bilbo. Thank you for your perspective too. Um, Excellent. Well, this person also had a second question that they submitted this week. Here it is. What are your thoughts on soaking plugs in a high EC range of two to three solution before cloning? Uh, it's going to be a little bit dependent on the nutrient manufacturer and, uh, you know, using some of the most common two-part salts, which is usually what we recommend right now is, uh, you know, two to three is not that high of a range for a lot of what they're recommending specifically for their product at that time. You know, things to kind of keep in mind is make sure you are taking a good sized clone so that you get a good head start on the growth of those. Uh, you know, make sure that you are soaking them for enough duration to get all the aero bubbles out and uh, wash out any of the wetting agent in there, the surfactant that is impregnated during the manufacturing process of that rock wool. So those are kind of some things to keep in mind and, you know, make sure your, your EC or your um, air pH is right on, right on par. Since you don't have a lot of substrate to work with, you want to make sure that, that everything is as consistent from plug to plug as possible. Yeah. You know, one thing I like to remember is that we've got to just have a rough baseline for the plants, you know, and a good thing going into veg is to actually do that in a 1.5 to three solution as far as our rock wool soaking. Uh, you know, a big part of cloning though is plant health. You know, how's your mom doing? If you've got an old mom, that's getting pretty weak. You're not going to produce solid clones when you're taking your clone cuts. Also remember, you know, we're, we want a lot of size consistency. We want to get it as close to the top of that dome as we can. Like Jason was saying, a bigger clone is going to get, be, uh, you know, not only a taller head start, but also we've got more plant matter there to work with. It's more robust. It has more energy inside of that little stick than a smaller one does. You know, and it, honestly, the, there's two big things I see in cloning that people, uh, you know, typically struggle with. Number one, where you make your cut. You know, I see a lot of people cutting their clones to all of you. Right up to having tape marks on their table and say, okay, these are all going to be exactly eight and a half inches long. Really, we want to go to the node and actually cut into that node tissue a little bit so we get a little bit of that axial meristem. That's what's going to grow the callus for us. Everything below the last, the bottom node on your cut is going to die when you clone it. So 
trim that up. Uh, you know, one of the other things I see people struggling with, especially if uh, they're just trying out, you know, rock wool cubes in a tray, um, get the plastic inserts that allow you to lift those cubes up out of there. You know, you don't want those sitting right on the bottom of your tray. We want a good air gap in there just to, you know, increase airflow, make sure we don't have any anaerobic conditions present. And then, uh, you know, actually like the inserts, you can pull them out part of the way through your clone run and put them into a different tray if you want to. It makes things like water change outs very easy and gives you that little extra padding because if that rock wool is sitting on the bottom of the tray and you've got even just a quarter inch of water inside the tray, now we don't have air circulation where we need it, which is down underneath where we stuck. Thank you for all of those tips, actually, because the next question from Berserker1015 was, what's your advice for best cloning strategy? Rock wood, I don't know if they meant rock wool, clone machine, par, trim leaves, etc. Seth and Jason, anything you'd add to the advice you just gave? I, you know, it's going to depend a little bit on your goals and what your final media is like. Uh, you know, obviously, if we're running a, an aeroponics setup, uh, you know, clone machines might be a great opportunity for us to not invest any rock wool, just get rid of the media altogether. Um, you know, however, you know, I personally really like rock wool cubes. The you know they're very consistent, which helps us get started. The um, the clones stick in there nice and solid you you know and one of the things that i recommend as well is uh, you'll see the split plugs uh used to be very common uh try to avoid the split plugs if you can and what you want to do is just um you know take a, a barbecue skewer or a pin depending on the size the thickness of your clones and, and just pop out kind of a a quick hole um and not necessarily all the way through the rock wool but as deep as you'll be putting your clones and try to make sure you're getting all the clones the same depth in that rock wool as well so those cubes and rock wool are probably my favorite way uh, of, of transplanting obviously if you are going to end up in cocoa you, you can transplant into cocoa it doesn't i found it doesn't quite clone as fast as rock wool and i'm guessing it's just because of the the poor spacing in that cocoa itself um and you know if you are starting off in a rock wool plug you can still transplant into a cocoa bag just fine the biggest issues we find when mixing medias is if we've got something like a four by four on top of a gallon cocoa for example where we only have you know a slight shared surface when we're cloning into something like a cube you know, by the time that you are ready for the new media the, the roots have prolificated almost all the way through that media itself. And so you don't have to get too worried about um, differentials between the pHs that you're running and um, the way that the hydraulic conductivity is different between the rock wool and the cocoa. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally have used rock wool the most. I like that. We can go back in the old days using, uh, you know, phenolic foam cubes too. <laughs> a little bit like rock wool, but, you know, maybe a little grosser on the environment. Um, you know, root riots, cocoa plugs are also a great solution if you're going into cocoa. And, you know, like Jason said, he's noticed a little slower results with the cocoa. I'll be honest. I work with a lot of guys that do use those that transplant into cocoa. And once you get kind of the slight different watering hang of it, just because they, you're going to need to water those cocoa plugs a little bit more. Usually they're a little smaller. They don't hold quite as much water. But other than that, you know, I mean, cleanliness is really one of the biggest keys. You know, always clean your equipment when you're sitting there taking your cuts and, you know, taking off side branches and things. Always clean your, clean your tray between moms, between strains, you know, switch out what razor blade you're using, switch out your snips. Um, as far as the actual cut, you know, 
usually like try to get at least five nodes when you're taking it off the, off the brain, uh, the plant, cut it down, make your cut on the node, stick it 150 PPFD light and, you know, 75 or so degrees and stick that dome on there, get the humidity up. Yeah. When you're talking about the environment, um, definitely try and build some SOPs in there and take samples across your domes. Uh, you know, it's not super likely that you're going to see huge differences from dome to dome. Um, you know, if you're using heat mats, like you don't have a completely controlled environment, you know, make sure that you've got enough data to suggest, Hey, all my heat works or uh, heat mats are pretty much heating these uh, clones identically or as close mm -hmm. as possible for that. Um, you know, so build SOPs as far as, uh, what, when you're taking those hoods off, how much you've got your, um, hoods or domes opened to mm -hmm. keep humidity in or out. Um, I definitely recommend, uh, weighing them as well. So get an idea of, you know, the weights when you need to irrigate and then you know outline that for your team so that they know hey here's when we intend these plants to probably be done from our clone room and here's the steps along the way so as we always talk about build some tasks in a harvest group mm -hmm. and get get uh, a tablet post up on the wall encourage your team to use arroyo on the app and just keep them up to date do everything that you can to make their jobs easier to stay consistent you know if we've got uh, too much mental going on there you have lack of communication between employees, all that type of stuff can be really hard on following SOPs. And that's, I think, kind of the real goal of Aurora was to pair people with more information to function proficiently as possible for the plant. Yeah. And I think you, you really struck on it there, you know, building those SOPs and then organizing it so you stay consistent. And, you know, those clones, every day you need to send someone in there to look. You got to check on all of them. We want to be after, you know, day two, three burping pretty regularly. We want to get some oxygen moving around. We want to take care of those. And part of it, honestly, is environmental sensing. So if I'm looking at what's happening in a 24 hour period, like, man, Hey, I'm taking me like three weeks to get through these clone runs. What the heck's going on? Suddenly I find out my temps drop to the low sixties at night, every night, like, okay, well, slowing down metabolism for half the day, every day. Wow. No wonder it takes an extra, you know, 50%. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple more things in there. Like you're talking about, um, trim leaves. I don't personally find it necessary. Uh, as long as you're not taking too big of, uh, a biomass chunk out of that plant, you don't need to trim those leaves it in a good ideal situation where you're hitting the VPDs that you need hitting the, um, par that you need, you should be able to, um, absorb, you know, enough, nutrients and water from that substrate that you're, you're not running that the plant dry. So, uh, it goes back to those SOPs when you are doing a specific, um, SOP for a strain, keep in mind, all right, you know, let's try not to grab more than this amount of, uh, of leaves when we are cloning. And that's going to just help you be more projectable, more predictable. Your sales team's going to like you more. Your coworkers are going to like you more because, uh, they get to treat all the plants the same. And obviously, you know, if you check out uh, a video I did, um, about consistency, um, growth behavior basically just talks about how lucky we are to be working off of clones simply because the ge genetic performance from cut to cut should be very, very similar. Whereas obviously if we're, we're working out of seeds, maybe we're doing some, um, phenol hunting that that consistency is not to be expected like it would from a clone lot. 
Man, dropping the knowledge today. We're, uh, just to let y'all know, we're going to um, be sure to get a link to Jason's video and share that with the community. But man, Seth and Jason, thank you so much for that excellent breakdown to our live attendees today. We got a lot of them. It's so good to see all of you. We want to know what questions you have. Be sure to drop those in the chat so we can get Seth and Jason to address those in real time. Um, but I'm going to get it over to Mandy. I think we have a write-in, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, we had a write-in this week from our friends over at River City Growers. Um, so they want to ask Seth and Jason, uh, what's the line between a drooping, thirsty plant and a wilting plant? Yeah, so I'll get started just kind of with the science behind that. And so when we are talking about what those lines are, it's going to be usually related to the matrix potential characteristics of your substrate and the, the health of the plant, right? So kind of two factors. When we think about plants that begin to droop, what is going on is the cell walls lose an amount of trigger pressure. And there can be a number of reasons for this. Uh, you know, it could be a cause of environmental factors. So the trigger pressures, um, low because we're too cold or too hot or not enough humidity. Uh, and that's why we always talk about VPD, you know, hit your VPDs. And most of the time that's going to help that plant uh, maintain uh, rigid trigger pressure in its cells. Uh, and when you jump back into substrate stuff, when we talk about trigger pressure, we're looking at um, the matrix potential. If the plant has to apply too much vacuum to pull water from that substrate, those cell walls are going to lose their rigidity and your plant's going to begin to droop. So you know, when we talk about people's plants are praying, that means that the trigger pressure is nice and rigid and the plant is acting well, right? And um, another factor we can talk about is uh, osmotic potential, which can uh, affect trigger pressure as well. It's probably a little more advanced topic that we use sometimes when uh, modifying uh, electrical conductivity, the nutrient levels at different stages in the plant. What those lines are specifically uh, easiest way to kind of get a start on that. If you've got good, healthy plants, you know, your environment's on par and stuff, uh, look up the matrix potential curves for your specific substrates. So if you're in something like cocoa, it's actually going to have a little bit of an elbow, usually between say 20 and 25%, depending on the manufacturer and the, the pith chip, um, size from, from that manufacturer and something like rock wool is very linear. And so when we look at rock wool, as long as the other factors are, are right, the substrate can get very, very low in water content before the plant actually feels a stress due to um, a high matrix potential or very low matrix potential, if you will, a high negative potential. So since Matrix potential is the vacuum that's being applied. It's going to be usually a negative KPA. Um, and so it's actually one of the ways that most traditional crop growers evaluate their uh, their soils. So if we're looking at subsurface drip, maybe you know, some corn in Colorado, for example, they will use something called a tensiometer for evaluating what the, the matrix uh, potential is, or excuse me, the um, that vacuum lever level is in the substrate. So... Um, that was kind of the in-depth ways to evaluate it. Sorry if I was not general enough. No, that's okay. I think uh, one thing we should talk a little bit about on this, though, is the difference between wilting point and permanent wilting point and looking at different medias. And that's really where the rubber meets the road here. You know, when we're talking about rock, well, like Jason said, you can go down extremely low without actually wilting the plant just because it has a low matrix potential. The plant is not having to pull that water out of the soil or the media. Um, other or other uh, media, you know, we're talking cocoa, 
yeah, it might be closer to, to 12, 15, even up to 17. And it's also going to range by strain. Uh, one important thing to note, though, about wilting point in general is that in this type of system, we're never trying to approach that. Typically, permanent wilting point is something we look at more in, you know, in-ground crops. And we'd be looking at, okay, how, you know, if we're looking at a vineyard, for instance, how dry are we going to get it to put enough generative stress on these grapes to bulk fruit production and not leaf production? Uh, so the practical application of wilting point in what we're doing is if you think your plant wilted, you messed up, <laughs> you got it too dry, or we're looking at, you know, Hey, do we have any Pythium or Fusarium issues? You know, you can see the same kind of symptoms with a wilt, uh, just, just because all the plumbing going up to the plant is clogged. Essentially when you've got bacterial infection at the base of the plant and in your roots, it's not necessarily, you know, disease symptoms you're going to see up top. It's starvation. It's wilting. There's no water when the pipes are plugged, <laughs> nothing can get up there. So I think it's important to look at like, Hey, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about plant stress inducing, uh, you know, morphological changes. And while that's absolutely true, we're not stressing it in the same way that we would traditionally talk about, like, let's say drought stress in corn, you know, there, what we're doing is if we have a drought stress trial or a PWP trial, we're going to go out to the field, see how dry we can get it. And at what, at what a certain point, 50% of my plants are going to die. And I go, all right, on this variety, just like with drugs, LD 50, that's what we're calling a permanent wilting point because over 50% of plants that I expose to this are going to die. And they won't recover. So yeah, again, just to stress, we never want to hit that in cannabis cultivation, nowhere even close. Yeah. And you know, one other factor there as well is uh, nutrient composition. So, um, you know, I get a lot of questions about, you know, people send me a picture of their leaf and they're like, Hey, you know, what's, what's going on here? I've got clawing or, um, intervenial chlorosis and, uh, it's really hard to tell specifically what, what that's trying to say. You know, if, if you do have other symptoms that suggest nutrient imbalance, send it in for a leaf issue analysis. They're fairly inexpensive. The companies will typically get around to you pretty quick and they'll give you an idea or which, um, which components of your nutrient, which elements in there are out of uh, expected ranges for cannabis. So uh, that, that would be kind of one last one that you definitely probably should be doing anyways, just to keep tabs on what uh, different strains are eating. But uh, definitely, absolutely, if you have any concerns that uh, that are related to composition. Yeah, you know, and uh, just to follow that, you know, I've, I've been encouraging people to use tissue sampling quite a bit. One thing I do run into, though, is certainly in a, uh, a fear and an obsession when they find out that they have a potential deficiency. One really important thing to remember is like, if you're already getting decent results with a fertilizer and you've got one strain that just doesn't like it or this run sucked or whatever, most fertilizer programs out there, most that I've encountered anyways, are fairly complete. You know, by the time you've got a schedule put together, usually you have everything. And if it didn't work at all the first time, that might be a sign that you're doing something wrong. Because generally, even if you go take these tissue analysis samples to a crop nutrition consultant, for instance, the answer might not be some secret sauce that you're missing out on. Usually it's correcting pH and feeding strategies and then upping or lowering your feed EC. A lot of times it's, it's not that you're missing anything special. It's just that that strain wants more calcium. <laughs> so we got to up the calcium nitrate to get at that during stretch or, you know, it's, it, it's usually a lot more simple. And I just want to stress that, you know, people shouldn't get scared of those tissue analysis results at all and really look for simple solutions before trying out like some new wild product that you've never tried before three quarters of the way through the run. 
you know. So you're telling me I don't need six different additives to achieve the best production? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't sell fertilizer, but you need a lot of sensors and internet. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys for that. Yeah. We have the questions rolling in over on YouTube. So yeah, I'm going to get to those. I feel like this is a good segue. Um, so Diane is uh, writing in, Hey, good to see you again. Um, so he wrote last time Seth was talking about calciums, but he didn't mention anything about calcium sulfate. What are your, what are your opinions on that? Typically, unless you have some kind of huge sulfur deficiency, that's not something we need to supplement. Um, I would tend to stick with calcium nitrate, particularly for supplementing. Uh, It's it's definitely an option to play around with. I would be careful in that, you know, when playing around with deviating from what's considered more of a standard mix, just because uh, you might run into things like ammoniacal nitrogen that do not play well when dissolved with other things. And that being the reason for that ammoniacal nitrogen is very low nitrogen content and it acidifies your solution very much. So like you're going to end up battling yourself and spending more money putting in certain amendments, whereas, you know, sticking with what's tried and true and works. And like I said, you know, sometimes if we're talking a calcium deficiency, throw in some good old CalMag, raise your EC. You know, sometimes we, sometimes like, let's say you've been riding a high EC for a while and we've got a steep drop off. Okay. If we take a tissue analysis test when those leaves yellow out, it's going to show us deficient in a bunch of things. We're not actually that deficient in our feed. It's just that we stacked it up and then dropped it off. And now the plant is struggling to uptake water because we've changed the osmotic environment so quickly. Um, so yeah, we have another question over on YouTube. Salty R um, says, thanks, thanks guys for these podcasts. We love them. Um, I was wondering what are some cues you'd suggest to make the plant stack harder in flower under HPS? Uh, I mean, I'll check off the basic easy ones. Make sure your CO2 concentrations, you know, CO2 levels in the room are uh, in corresponding to your light levels. Make sure your light levels are nice and high. Um, make sure you've pushed that plant with some of the crop steering techniques that we consistently talk about through these episodes. Um, those are the ones to check off uh, that are easy. Here's another one. Uh, go for your shorter veg and don't top, you know, go with a little bit smaller, more manageable plants. Maybe you're going to end up with more of them. But if I take a plant that I've only grown to like 14 inches tall and flip it, it's got, you know, a smaller space between nodes at that point coming out of edge, you know, and that, that even leads into, uh, if we're really trying to get it to stack, that starts way back in veg, you know, we're going for a more generative style in veg. If we've got a plant that's really trying to take off and just trying to keep those inner nodes short when we flip, you know, if you're, if you're back there flipping a two and a half, three foot tall plant, um, it's going to be hard to get that to stack as well. It's just a game of proportions. If we say this plant's going to double in size, pretty much every aspect of these inner nodes, well, bigger inner node is way bigger when you double it. So, uh, basically just, you know, follow your program all the way through and don't let up on, uh, your generative attack. I'll say in the beginning, trying to fight that stretch, you know? Awesome. Thanks guys. Uh, salty R you'll have to let us know if you have any follow-up questions, but yeah, that's, uh, it for our YouTube for now, but please send in your questions. So Keisha back over to you. 
Awesome, Mandy. Thank you so much. All right. Our next question from Instagram is submitted by Kanasutra OG. They have a sensor question. They're wondering, why does my Terrace 12 Solus Combo read 100% VWC in rock wool sometimes? Any thoughts on that? Um, that's kind of weird. I, you know, are you inserting the sensor too low, possibly? Um, usually in rock wool, we'll see the, um, field capacity and say that 60 to 70% range, sometimes up to 75%. So, uh, that's, that's definitely a little different. Might have to chat with you to, to get more specifics on that the process you are installing the sensor. Yeah, absolutely. Please hit us up. <laughs> Either of us would be really happy to go into that with you. Um, Typically, yeah, we don't see that high of reading. There is one case, though, where I've been pretty stumped for a while, and then someone sent me a picture, and it just clicked for me. If your tray is not totally level, and you've got a slab in one, on one end of it, and it's not actually draining off correctly, you just have a slab that's constantly, there's a puddle underneath it, then you might see something like that. But otherwise, yeah, try replacing the sensor, you know, moving it to a different slab, and try to determine if it is, you know, if it is a sensor problem, again, talk to us, but... If you move it to a different slab and it reads something more normal, it's like, okay, well, are we dealing with some sort of irregularity in this particular slab? We might be looking at that. That definitely happens. Awesome. Yeah. Kind of, um, kind of sutra OG. If you see this and you, you still stump, definitely hit us up on Instagram and let's see if we can figure out that issue. Send us some pictures. All right. I'm going to keep on going here. Lot key submitted a question through Instagram. They want to know when running a perpetual harvest in a large glass house, what sort of night temperature difference and VPD range would you target? Ooh, that's <laughs> going to be a, the tricky part of yeah. perpetual harvests, obviously, when we have young plants and old plants, it's a lot more difficult to to tailor the day-night temperature differentials uh, and the ideal VPD ranges. So usually young plants will be a little bit lower VPD. We'll keep those daytime temps nice and high. Nighttime temps will be pretty close to daytime temps. And then obviously towards the end of the cycle, we're shooting for a little bit higher VPD, mostly to avoid mold growths. Um, bacterias, that type of stuff. Um, and so you got to make the best consideration that you can. Uh, you know, if we have big night day differences, we're going to help induce anthocyanin production towards the end of flowering. Uh, if, if we've got those on our younger plants, then we're going to have a, a little bit less, um, a little bit less fast in the production of it as that yeah, um, we're going to end up with a smaller plant. Yeah. You're going to slow it down during stretch and not produce as much biomass. So I can answer that actually. <laughs> Do it. You know, you're going to end up running about 74 to 77. You might get a four or five degree overnight diff ideally, and probably 1.2 to 1.4 VPD, you know, maybe down to 1.1. But just like Jason was saying, you're going to have to pick trade-offs. If you want to get your, your nugs to purple up, well, you're going to, be dealing with smaller plants. And then the next step is, you know, you mentioned glass house, which I don't know if you're in England, that's where I've heard the term glass house a lot more than greenhouse. But anytime we are talking about a greenhouse, uh, you know, obviously the outside environment is a huge factor. Do I have the energy to actually keep that temperature up? You know, we, we might be talking like about something that you can't even really achieve here. Like maybe if you can get it up to 68 at night and that's all you can get in the winter. Well, that's what we're going for. And that's, you know, anytime we're talking about greenhouses and 
the bigger they are, the more we need to count on there being a variation in harvest related to the time of the year. You know, if we're talking a really small, uh, hybrid greenhouse that has mixed lighting, pretty self-contained. Yeah. That's basically a high tech grow room. If we uh, are talking, you know, 10,000 plus square feet, uh, yeah, every yields, every harvest is going to yield a little bit differently and every run is going to be different because we're, we're never going to be able to recreate perfectly our nighttime temps. Yeah. And run some time series, uh, sampling of your environment, um, across that greenhouse. So, uh, just, you know, from my experience, I was running in uh, 40 by 120 greenhouses and it was all, uh, horizontal airflow, right? So we had pad pump, um, on the front end of it and exhaust fans on the other end. And we almost always had a lot more heat at the exhaust end, right? Uh, as our solar radiation's building up in that room, we're going to collect heat in there. And so, you know, let's say that was the perpetual harvest. We would probably want the young plants towards the exhaust fans where we have a little bit higher temperature, a little bit lower differentials and move them towards the front where we can take advantage of uh, some of those, those temperature drops when the pad is opening up. Yeah. All the greenhouse fun. Why does purple punch turn purple at the front of the room and never at the back? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that is one of the fun things about a greenhouse though, is you do have all these uh, dynamic things going on that you can, you know, are a challenge, but as Jason pointed out, sometimes you can take advantage of that, you know, just, just like I love having a, a greenhouse for a veggie bay too, for instance, and I can work in there in the morning without my lights on and then kick those off a little later in the day and be comfortable. Is it perfectly consistent PPFD? Eh, probably not as quite as if I had a lamp on it all the time, but guess what? That's kind of a little benefit of getting to work in that system. Everyone in the flower rooms is sweating and everyone in the bedroom is nice and comfy. <laughs> this was such a great question, Lockheed. We don't know where you're located. You'll have to let us know, but um, if you're in Europe, I love how talking cultivation is, it's global, it's international. So we are gonna keep the party going. Mandy, what's happening on YouTube? Oh man, we have a ton of shout outs and we have a lot of questions coming in. Um, yeah, I'm just going to start at the top. Um, Hoffman's Choice, I think we've uh, gotten some questions from you before. Nice to see you again. Uh, they want to know, I recently installed pressure compensated drippers and my existing submersible pump is heating up the reservoir due to increased feed times. Any external pump or booster brand recommendations? I, I mean... I, I like Grunfos equipment because it's been in the industry for a long, long time. Uh, we see uh, dab pumps all over the place. Mm -hmm. Anything that's probably not specific to cannabis growing is what you're going to want to use. Anything that's getting used in other industries is a great way to go. Yeah. And I mean, one thing we found, you know, just like your pressure compensating emitters, those weren't designed for cannabis either. Those have been ported over from the vegetable production industry and nursery industry. So you know, like Jason said, don't, don't focus on cannabis specific ones, but at the moment, you know, if you go to any number of, uh, hydro stores or online, uh, distributors, you will see DAP, you'll see Grunfos, you'll see uh, several of the same pumps. You get to the smaller end of things, like kind of more towards the home or boutique to sub 2000 square feet. You might run into like the little giants, but basically, you know, what you want to look for is, uh, you might want to avoid a pump that's got, you know, some kind of uncoated cast iron housing, for instance, because we're running salt water through there. So you want to make sure you've got enough power, probably a couple of horse, depending on how big your system is. But really just look for a quality pump that has quality components and isn't going to corrode on you. That's the, the biggest enemy of everything here is rust. 
it's the one metal part in our system that can. And if you buy the wrong one, it will. And if you want to see some plugged injectors, you know, you think your salts do something, wait till you get rust in your lines. All really good notes and things to keep in mind. Um, yeah, Hoffman's Choice, you'll have to let us know if you have any follow-ups. Uh, yeah, going down our list, Diane wants to know, um, I don't want to use calcium nitrate because after five uh, week five and flowering, I don't need that much nitrogen, but I need calcium for sure. Um, so how am I going to be able to battle that? Gotcha. Calcium silicate's another available supplement. Um, I would strongly, uh, I mean, unless you've got some tissue analysis results to back you up and I, I looked at your entire feed chart and everything, including your graph of a whole grow. So I could see what your EC was doing in the root zone. I wouldn't immediately put just seeing spots on the leaf, you know, as a calcium uh, deficiency, like, or, or should I put it, it doesn't mean it's deficient in our feed. It means our delivery strategy may not be sufficient for the plant. You know, for instance, a lot, I've run into a lot of people that are running a, a few different brands that do have calcium supplemented in them and that they'll be adding CalMeg. And just having all kinds of problems because what they're, you know, attributing to a calcium deficiency isn't one at all. They're just running in the wrong EC range or like, hey, what's your runoff pH? 4.9 to 5.2. Okay, well, everything's deficient at that point. So immediately going to that one supplement isn't always going to get you there. Diane, I would, I would always probably try to raise my root zone EC and get that root zone visibility before I just assume that this plant has a problem. There's a lot of ways to mess up a plant building up to actually seeing that symptom. Such a fine line that you walk. Um, yeah. Thank you for that, Diane. Um, back over to you, Keisha. We got some live questions coming in. Yes. All right. Mark dropped a question in the chat. Mark, do you want to unmute yourself or I can ask for you? I'm just going to go on. I'm going to just go for it. And if you have anything you want to chime in on, feel free to unmute yourself. Mark wrote in, in an indoor LED setup around 30 feet by 50 feet, what would be your preferred air movement setup? Oscillating fans, V-flow fans, axial type fans, racetrack pattern, et cetera. Thanks, guys. Thanks to your question, Mark. So, you know, this might be a little bit personal preference. Um, there's a lot of different solutions that can get you good air mixing in there. My favorite uh, way is uh, HVAC socks, uh, especially for an indoor where you already have an HVAC system outside of the room. Um, and, you know, you've got ducting vents going into there. Get some HVAC socks. Uh, basically, they're going to distribute that air very well so that you have consistent airflow across there. Uh, and then, you know, if you do see ver vertical stacking of heat, uh, I like some some carpet fans every once in a while under the benches if you, if you do run into a lot of vertical variants. Yeah. I mean, you know, the carpet fans are great. I'll definitely, well, I won't tell a story about them, but be careful with those. <laughs> yeah. You nailed it with the HVAC socks. Those are like pretty much the bee's knees in this business right now. They're easy to put in. They're not in the way all the time, like hard venting. And then once you start running them, you'll realize, Hey, I've got pretty even pressure across all the holes coming out of this sock versus, you know, with my oscillating fans, like don't really get even coverage after about five feet away from them. Um, really that, that sock is going to be your best friend. And then carpet fans for the floors are all right. Um, I think the big thing is having enough fans and that's where, that's where the sock comes in. If I have one huge one, I can distribute that. Otherwise, you know, 
the equivalent might scare you to move the same amount of air with some oscillating fans and get it to where you want to go. And then if we're talking like lift fans or V flows, anything like that, you know, if I'm 12 feet in the air with that, I've only got so much efficacy. So that's really the thing to keep in mind is like, we want the source of that, maybe not the, what generates the moving air, but the, wherever the air exits the fan or the duck, we want it to be as close to the plants as we can get it for actual, you know, efficacy. Yeah. You know, you've got an advantage already with running on LEDs. So you've got less localized heat than we'd see from HPSs. So probably not quite as much uh, vertical heat stacking as we'd see in uh, more traditional HPS setups. Uh, you know, another advantage of those HVAC socks is their diffused air movement. So when we're running oscillated fans, for example, you know, a lot of times we're going to have to have plants that aren't so close to avoid wind burning. Um, you know, maybe we're going to run into wind burning anyways. And now you've got lack of consistency across your canopy, mm. uh, all those types of things. So that diff diffused is just a really nice way to keep gentle movement throughout uh, the entire space as consistent as possible. Yeah. And if, you know, there's two things I like to look at too, whenever we're talking about these equipment upgrades, uh, you know, economics, am I going to buy 20 oscillating fans? Cause that's going to be a lot more expensive than that sock. And then uh, how much wire am I running to power all these things? So <laughs> that's, you know, there's, there's a few logistics to think about. If I have to go add 15 outlets to a room um, that really jacked up my building cost quite a bit, you know, especially associated wire. Hopefully I have enough space in the panel, you know, we're already using a lot of power here. We don't want to take it for things that aren't directly producing us money. Like more light makes me more money, more airflow. It's good for my plants, but not, it's not the same correlation for power usage. Plus fans are really fun to clean. So, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that side too, right? That was a joke. No more taking apart your fans. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And those socks. I mean, I've seen people clean them. I've also seen, there's some cheaper ones out there you can buy and throw away every few months, you know? Yep. So let me throw in the laundry machine. Um, yep. Fans you can throw in the laundry. It's just like a, it's a sock. It's just a long tube that inflates and has a bunch of little holes in it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. But no cutting yourself, setting it up either. You know? Yeah. Wow. Science is cool. <laughs> really? Facts. Mark, thank you so much for that excellent question. I don't think we've met you before. So if you want to be in our raffle, please feel free to drop your email address in the chat. All right. Sending it back to you, Mandy. We got more from YouTube. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. The questions are rolling in. Um, Diane did have a follow-up question. Um, so he wants to know what's the difference between MPK monopotassium phosphate and MAP monoammonium phosphate. Also, if there are any benefits to use something else like polypotassium phosphate. Let me know if you want me to drop that question in the chat, guys. <laughs> uh, sure. I'll be honest. I usually avoid anything that's ammoniacal when we're talking about hydroponic solutions. Uh, beyond that, I don't have the most experience to answer that question, to be perfectly honest. I'm sorry, Seth. What was that word you just said? Ammoniacal? Yeah. So like if we're looking at monoammonium phosphate, that's like NH4P. I can't remember the rest of it. But... Anytime you see ammonia, you're going to have, you know, a four to one ratio of hydrogen ions to nitrogen ion. Thus, you're going to really increase the acidity in your solution. That would be the main effect of that. But you're not getting much nitrogen either. 
Got it. Awesome. awesome. Thanks for that. Yeah, Diane, let me know if you have any follow-ups. Uh, we got a second question from Iron Armor. Um, so what type of root in irrigation strategy would work well with stacking a four by four by four rock wool cube on a six inch Hugo day one of flowering? I noticed the bottom block wicking out the moisture from the top cube. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's probably a little bit more tricky, uh, of a root in process just because it's, it's not necessarily the best combination for larger plants. You've got a fairly tall vertical stack. Um, but for some of the root in processes, you're going to do very similar to like we'd be doing in, uh, uh, slabs or onto cocoa. And, uh, you're going to want, you know, a number of multiple shots a day that are pretty small. Uh, if you do see that lower block wicking, you might have to up the number of shots a little bit just to make sure that the plant's got some water up in that top block and you're not losing it all to, um, hydro hydraulic movement into the lower block. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to remember. You know, after this transplant, obviously you want to have your drippers in that top block, but also be aware that your water content and your field capacity in that top block just dropped from 65 to about 35. <laughs> so all your water moved downwards. Um, there's not going to be anything special going on. Although if that's going to be your growth strategy, just, just a little tip, you might want to plant directly into the six by six by sixes and save some money on the Delta tens because you're not gaining an appreciable amount of water holding capacity by going with the Hugos versus a Unislab or anything else. Great advice. Great. Awesome. Yeah. It, you guys always have great advice. Um, yeah. On, uh, Iron Armor, let me know if you uh, have any follow-up questions. Um, other than the awesome shout-outs that we're getting from East Coast, um, from uh, pretty much everybody who's chatting in, um, yeah, I think those are the questions for now. So I'm going to pass it back over to Keisha. Thank you so much, Mandy. Shouting back to you all over on YouTube. So good to have you. All right. And just letting all know everybody who's on live with us today, we've got about 15 minutes left. Not too late for you to speak to the experts. I'm going to keep it moving with our Instagram quest questions here. Casey Garcia wrote in, how do you set your maintenance feeds? Thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. So let's start off with uh, substrate size and transpiration plus evaporation rates, right? So I did this just the other day for a client that was doing a crop steering class four and I looked at, all right, we well, are losing about 3% water content per hour during photo period on and about 1% per hour photo period off, right? And so then we can evaluate if we're shooting for, uh, you know, say 15% maintenance dryback, then this will be the irrigation window that we need for that size of substrate based on our water holding capacity. And, so that, you know, that's going to be kind of your first constraint is, all right, what can we do to achieve the dryback that we're, we're hitting the need? Um, you know, in, in their case, they were a little bit too small a substrate. And so they weren't able to, um, you know, run a short generative irrigation schedule. Um, so for any of the more vegetative, their, you know, their maintenance shots were pretty long. So that's kind of the, the wide outline, you know, as far as the, the number of irrigations definitely related to your dripper size, if, uh, or emitter rate would be the most appropriate. Sorry to say that. Um, so it, you know, if we've got say two gallon per hour drip emitters, that's going to be a lot faster water flow than we would like, and we'll need to break up our maintenance and probably even our, um, initial irrigations into a, a shorter, irrigation durations so that the um, 
capillary effect of the substrate can can basically wick out the water before we start uh, just running off because of that flow rate. Yep, we don't want cohesion or gravity to overcome cohesion before it exits the bottom of the block. Um, yeah, I think that you covered it pretty good there, dude. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. That's an excellent run rundown. Hopefully, Casey has everything they need to know to, to, to do their, do their maintenance feeds on their end. Excellent. All right. Going to keep it moving here. We got a write-in from Chebby factory CA. They're looking for some guidance when transplanting from one gallon quick fill bag to two gallon. They're wondering when to change the placement of the sensors. Hmm. Uh, well, when you pull it out of the old pot and put it in the new one, you're going to want to stick the new pot um, back to the, you know, Delta 10 and the Hugo question though, you're going to get a lot better performance shortening up your veg by switching to like a 0.3 gallon cocoa pot rather than going from a one to a two gallon. With that one gallon pot, we're looking at, you know, more like a 10 to 14 day root in time before we can actually start hitting it quite as hard with our P1s. Whereas with that smaller pot, we're going to get a faster root in period and also not have as much media to sling around the facility. Great. All right. Keeping it moving through Instagram. Folks who are on with us, you still got a little bit of time. Ask your questions, post them in the chat. No middleman wrote in. Would dry back, I think they mean drying back, my living soil mess up the life of the soil? Probably not. I mean, especially if you're within the dryback parameters that we talk about, uh, you know, you're still going to have moisture available to the organisms in that substrate. So I wouldn't get too worried about it unless you're, you know, you're going oven dry, uh, which your plants aren't going to like. So it's going to be worse for your plants than the substrate itself or the soil itself. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest factor there is uh, looking at, you know, there's a, a lot of talk out there about what living soil is. And the reality is we're, we're, we're dealing with soil, soilless mixes with organic amendments. So when you look at your living soil, um, if you're constantly having to replace, you know, if you're re-inoculating or anything like that regularly, then, you know, that's going to have a lot more effect on your plant health than drying back. Naturally, in any given system, we're going to have a dry back, right? It's not raining 24-7. So therefore, we see, you know, some range. That's why, like, when you see, you know, an EC range... Okay, it's not static. Like, no, it wouldn't be because even in nature, the ground's always slowly drying out and, you know, it fluctuates. So, yeah, go for it. Go for those drybacks just like you're outside, you know. Uh, but one thing to remember, if you are working with a living soil, quote unquote, um, you're probably dealing with a peat or cocoa based mix. So you're going to want to run some of those same water content parameters, you know, figure out where your field capacity is. Are you looking at? 35%, 45%, 55%, and then say, okay, I'm not going to plan on going below 20, 25% just for safety. Um, it's if you are dealing with a soil that has some CEC and actually has some clay particles and things like that, then it starts to get a little more complicated on establishing where that wilting point would be. Like we were talking earlier, that's kind of where that all that comes into play. Wonderful, you guys. Thank you so much. All right. Running out last couple of Instagram questions here. Um, Kevin Greens wrote in, I'm running well H2O. Is it more important for me to use hydrochloric acid in my water? Um, you know, there's, uh, I'm guessing you're talking about how to pH the water more than 
trying to treat it. I think uh, he's talking about sanitizing. Hypochlorous has been pretty popular lately, uh, especially in some people that have water quality issues like the fusarium contamination and stuff. So how dirty is your well? <laughs> Let's start there. You know, what kind of PPM is your well water coming out at? Is it full of carbonates? Is it alkaline? You know, what's the pH we're looking at? That's, that's kind of the basis there. Well, water can be really great and it can be not so great. I mean, around here, you can drill a 30 foot well and get some pretty gross water, or you can drill a 200 foot well and get some amazing water. So that's a really broad question. I would say. Best thing you can do, send some samples in for water analysis and you'll get an idea of what nutrients are already available in the water and then maybe what contaminants you might want to be worried about. And that's why you're treating it. Yeah, you might be surprised to come find out that you have 0.3 EC of things that you actually want in there, you know, and you can save a little money on your mixes. Awesome. All right. Um, gosh, somebody's coming in. I love it. We're, we're still going. We're going in hot. In the last few minutes of uh, office hours this week, live attendees, type your question in the chat. Now's the time. Um, I got this one from Instagram, Peter Birch. I think I messed up your name. Sorry, Pete. Um they want to know what is the cause of little green tree seeds, not fully formed and usually have more than two sides. Seth and Jason, you ever seen that before? Yeah. Late stage hermaphrodites. So basically you're having either an EC problem, heat problem, or some other stress related issue potentially, or you've got a strain that's an F1 hybrid off of two female plants. So just by breeding two female plants, we've pre-selected for a plant that's going to throw nanners. If that, if that pollen, if that plant starts throwing stamens in week, you know, six, seven, that's not enough time for any of those seeds to actually mature. You know, if you're actually out there looking for seeds and you're, you know, digging through your crop, looking for them, you made some crosses, the actual seeds that you'd want are going to be down deep in the flower, close to the stem. They're going to be those earlier calyxes that you want. Those late ones, like I said, that's just, you, you got a plant herming out in there and you, you probably missed it somewhere. You know, just didn't notice it during the takedown. That's the, and it's probably right next to that one bud that's just loaded with seeds. <laughs> it's usually how it works. Never a dull moment in cannabis cultivation, is there? All right. Bilbo typed a question. You want to go ahead and ask it, Bilbo? Sure. It's back to these tiny pots that I was incessant on running. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it happened. I'm now uh, having to irrigate once approximately seven hours after the P3 has started. Uh, that brings the volumetric water content up to a palatable range. And then shortly before lights on, I'm getting another notice letting me know that I'm, I'm getting into that range again. And I'm wondering, is there some strategy that I have not thought of or i mean really you can that's out there that has me not doing this again but still yeah. maintaining the same mix um i mean if you're stuck on that substrate volume and you want to be able to have more of a gas tank to steer with essentially you're gonna have to get a smaller plant that pot's got to carry less plant matter being grown out of it um you, i mean you can manipulate your vpd but Typically, I don't like to tell people, hey, let's back off on the light and the VPD to the things that are actually really important for biomass production. Uh, you know, without lowering your yields, the only way you're going to do it is more smaller plants. And by small, I mean, there's some people in double stack situations that are flipping them 10 day veg, 
you know, that sucker's got roots, it gets a 15% dry back, then they flip it. Yeah, I have not tried that yet, but uh, usually because going into flower, there's already some, I wouldn't say trepidation, but no matter how many times you do it, there's always running new cultivars. You never actually know how, how it's going to perform and trying to really yield. In my mind, it's easier, not necessarily cheaper, but it's easier to just administer the peat freeze. But going forward, running the same cultivars, I don't want to continue that. So your only logical uh, conclusion is smaller plants. Well, that's where we're going to head. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh... And, and honestly, I do work with some people who use flood and drain tables and four by four by four rock wool cubes. Their plants are about two feet tall, two and a half feet tall at harvest, but they're putting 240 to 300 plants in a five by 20 table. So there are ways around it. It's just finding that, you know, obviously finding that plant size to flip that works for your media and then deciding like, okay, well, I need this much more media to get the same amount of yield. And that's where that gets a little frustrating for sure. Oh, and, and once again, thank you, everybody uh, over at Arroyo for your continued effort in the market. Absolutely, man. We like talking to you guys. It's fun. It is fun, Bilbo. Thank you for asking that excellent question. Um, just wanted to return back to the question asked earlier about why does my Terrace 12 Solus combo read 100% BWC and Rockwell? I think we, I think they came on live and if you're on with us, please unmute yourself and, and let's see if we can get that addressed. Kanasutra OG. What's the handle? Maybe not. All right. Maybe they're thinking about it. Um, in the meantime, Mandy, anything else from our, our folks over at YouTube? Um, you know, it's a little quiet over there for now. I think everyone's just listening to you guys. Um, but yeah, another awesome show with tons of questions answered. Um, I know I learned a lot glass house and greenhouse, um, <laughs> learning a new uh, term every day with you guys. Um, but yeah, I think I'm good over here on YouTube. So, uh, back to you, Keisha. Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. All right. Well, Seth and Jason, any final words before we close up today? I don't think so. Uh, pretty close to wrapping up October here. And I, I think most of the outdoor work in our area is coming to a fast end tomorrow. <laughs> That's all I was going to say. If you live in Washington or uh, Oregon or Montana, get your outdoor in now today. October <laughs> needs to be finished by the 21st. Huh? <laughs> it's yep. It's freezing soon. <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, Jason, thank you again for all of your tips. I was looking at my trichomes. I will be harvesting this weekend. I'm pushing it a little bit, uh, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to having some beautiful flower to enjoy. And I'll, and I'll uh, share with y'all only if it's positive outcome, if it's not such a good outcome, I won't say anything. I'm sure it'll be great. You got, you got the climate down there and you, you did the best thing, you know, when you think it's ready, wait another week. It's, yes, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, Jason said, thank you so much for a great, another great conversation. Mandy, as always, thank you for co-moderating with me. Thank you to everybody who joined us for Office Hours this week. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. If you have any questions about Arroyo, book a demo. Our experts will be more than happy to tell you about how it can be used to improve your cultivation process. But as always, if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future Office Hours session, post it in the chat, shoot us an email at 
support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us a DM over Instagram. We want to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everybody in attendance a link to the video from today. And it'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please spread the word. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next week. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.